what a privilege it is to worship the one who is the lion and the lamb. I think we all know the goodness of the Savior and a lamb that was sacrificed on our behalf, but never forget, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the great and almighty God, the Lord. Whether people recognize him, acknowledge him, worship him or not, he exists and he is the Lord God of Almighty. And you know what? He's fighting our battles and we're resting and worshiping him. So let's just go before the Lord now in prayer. Lord, what an immense privilege it is for us to gather together as your people. You have redeemed our life from the pit. You've crowned us with loving kindness. You're the God of grace and mercy. You're a God of immeasurable love. And you are the God who brings salvation and the God who brings sanctification. And you are the Lord God Almighty. And so, Lord, as we now come and open up your word, we're asking that once again your spirit would be our teacher Would you take the eternal truths of Scripture and form and fashion us as your people? And so we pray expectantly and ask for you, God, to do your work for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. And if you want to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. And I want you to know I am really excited for what's going to take place here not too long from now when the Summer Olympics kick off. I mean, the Olympics is something that you really look forward to, and last year we kind of had to take a little pause, but you have some of the world's finest athletes from around the world, and they are gathering together on this really unique stage, and it's, it's really amazing. Their stories are amazing. You're going to see all sorts of individuals, and even though they're competing as individuals, you need to know that they're actually a part of a team. They have trainers. They have people that support them. Oftentimes it's family, but they are, they are a part of a team, but they function as an individual, at least when they are actually out on the field or competing in their events. But then there are a number of events that are team events, and it's apparent. And the degree that they actually play as a team is the degree oftentimes that they experience success. If you've got some, you know, kind of glory hound individual on your team and it's all about them kind of like making the big show on the world stage, those teams fail. Because what's needed for success is teamwork. And do you know that you are most likely on a team? Perhaps you're on several teams. For instance, if you're married, you're on a team. If you're a part of a family, you most assuredly are on a team. If you have a job that you actually work with others, guess what? Whether it's your department or your force, um, the group of people that you uh, meet together with, you're on a team. If you are a part of Fellowship Bible Church or a part of a local church, you're on a team. If you're a part of a small group or you're involved in ministry, I want you to know you are on a team. And when's the last time that you've actually thought about, like, well, what does that really mean? What does it actually look like to be on a Christ-centered team. Now, if you've been around for a while, uh, I'm sure you've experienced what it means to be on a dysfunctional team. Uh, You can think of examples like that. Maybe that is your present scenario. Like, how did you know that's my job, you know? 
and it is discouraging and depressing and we don't get things done and it's dysfunctional and it's amazing that we even stay in business. I don't even know how it happens, but it's dysfunctional. On the other hand, I hope you've had the experience in life to be on a, on a team that is high-functioning. I mean, it is just a sheer joy, the synergy that comes when you have folks that are committed and moving and pulling together. It's, it's a one plus one equals three kind of synergy. But what does it look like to be on a Christ-centered team? What is God seeking to accomplish in his people as a body? Well, that's what we're going to spend two weeks looking at. This is of immense importance. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 There's a reason why these are familiar verses, because they are absolutely essential. If you are married, you're in a family, you're a part of a church, these verses can't be just something you're familiar with. They are the bread and butter of our existence as a group, how we function as a team or a married couple, as a family. And if you are not engaged with this text, either you're unfamiliar with it or you're just like, kind of pass it up, I can assure you, you had a lot of problems on the team that you are in or on. So what does it look like? Now, let me just uh, give you the context in which you find Philippians chapter 2. It's always good to take a passage and understand it in its context. So if you look at context in Colossians, excuse me, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, it says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that you, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So Paul is writing to the Philippian church and he has this noble goal. You see it right there in verse 27 that you will conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, the gospel of God's grace. That is the gospel of the kingdom that God has sent the savior, the Messiah, the King. And he has not only come to bring forgiveness of sins through his righteous life and his death on a cross. He has called us to life in relationship and discipleship with him. It is the gospel of the kingdom. And what Paul is writing about here is that you and I would function in a way that is worthy of this gospel. And that will be impossible apart from relationship with Christ, that we keep coming back to him. And so in order for us to actually function as a team, you've got a role to play. You have to yourself be abiding in Christ. And God is the source of our strength for Christ-centered living. Take a look here at the text that we're going to be studying here for a couple weeks. Chapter 2, verse 1, he talks about the great resources we have in Christ. He says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. Now, you see that if there, and you're like, hmm, does that mean like, well, well, possibly, maybe there's some encouragement in Christ, but I'm not sure. Actually, in the Greek, it is crystal clear. These are first-class conditions. This isn't a maybe. This is since. This is absolutely true. Since would be a good translation of this. Since there is encouragement in Christ. This word encouragement has the idea of coming alongside to help, to counsel, to exhort. What you and I need most That's what God gives us. 
encouragement in Christ. Why? Because life is hard. Our flesh is prone to go anywhere but God. We need hope. We need peace. We need courage. We need counsel. All of this encouragement, guess where it's found? There is encouragement in Christ. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love. This is really a cool term. It has the idea of, of like the Lord, like whispering in your ear, gentle cheer, tender counsel, comfort. You see, what you and I need most, fellowship with Christ, that's what he gives us. Consolation of love. Here he sa- shows if we have, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit. You know, the beauty of Christianity is that God sends Christ to the earth. He is the one who, who actually lives out righteousness, pays the penalty for our sin, and offers forgiveness for all who trust in him. But it's not just this forgiveness that comes by faith where we're declared right with God. He also places his Holy Spirit in our life. It's this indwelling Holy Spirit so that we would have fellowship, connection, camaraderie. It is the indwelling spirit that gives us gifts so that we can serve, but he also gives us strength, hope. It's this sweet relationship that defines us, and that's what God wants us to experience. And he goes on to say, if there's any affection and compassion, affection speaks of a love that involves one's entire being, and compassion is to stimulate action based upon an awareness of need, Everything that you and I need, Christ provides. It's found right here. This is the source of spiritual strength. But this is the problem. We're aware of this, but oftentimes we don't go to the source that provides renewal, refreshment, strength, peace, love. I don't know why it is all the case, always the case, but it seems like maybe I'm, I'm too busy Perhaps it's like, well, you know, I could just be more productive if I just kind of plow forward. Maybe um, you'd think like, well, it's, it's not really that important. And that's where we're mistaken. I think we're, we're familiar with how important it is to stay refreshed and recharged. We have some devices that, that kind of reinforce this principle on a regular basis. If you carry with you a, a, a phone, a mobile phone, or you've got a laptop computer, I mean, those things are great when they're functioning well, when they're charged up, right? I mean, it works great. It does what it's supposed to do. But I've got these like little indicators that tell me how much battery life that I have left. And when it gets low, I get these flashing signals, these warnings, you know, like low battery life, okay? 10%, 8%. 4%, you know, and you're like, ah, but I got to squeeze this out here. And like, ah, and you think you can just kind of make it all happen, right? And if you know, what do you need to do when you got these warnings that you need to charge? Does anybody know? This is family Sunday, so I got some kids. What do you do when you've got low battery life? That's right. Did you hear that? You charge it up. You get the cord connected into the electrical outlet, and you charge up your phone or your computer. We get that. That makes sense, right? Because if you don't, what? That phone or that computer is going to go dark. Well, that's kind of what happens in our life. There are these indicators that, you know what? It's time to refresh. It's time to be just resting in the presence of God, to experience life-giving joy in Him. 
I, I've got some indicators. I'm sure you do. Let me, let me throw out some common indicators that it's time for refreshment in Christ. You've got a lack of peace. Patience? Out the window, right? Um, you're frustrated. You're prone to irritability. Um, you feel overwhelmed. And it's kind of like these like little beeping signals. You're wearing out. You're wearing out. Years ago, um, I heard of one wife who could recognize that when her husband would come home from a really hard day at the office, she knew that what was most needed was for him to spend a little bit of time with God. And so she'd say, hey, before we eat, why don't you spend like 20 minutes in the basement, just you and God? Made for a much happier evening, I'm sure, right? But what, what that woman understood is this principle. You and I need spiritual strength from God. Friends, the Christian life cannot be lived apart from fellowship with Jesus Christ. Jesus said what? John fifteen five. Apart from me, you can do what? So why do we try? Why do we keep, well, I'll just, I'll get to it sometime. And, or on Sunday, that'll be my time of great refreshment. And I hope it is our times of worship, but we are called to the consistency of the sweetness of fellowship with the living God. And it's not just so that we ourselves personally benefit. You need to understand that the Christian life is not lived in isolation, but it is lived in community. That God literally brings us into his family, his body. We function in the context of community. You could think of it as a team. And what is needed for a team to function well? What are the traits of a Christ-centered team? That's what you find beginning in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. God gives us the riches of relationship with Christ so that we will do well together. So what is the first trait that's absolutely essential for a Christ-centered team? The first one is unity. Take a look, verse 2. Paul writes this, in light of the just overwhelming abundance of the riches of relationship with Christ, verse 1, verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. I don't want you to miss the, how it begins. Make my joy complete. Paul is saying, my joy is made full when you function in a unified manner. Not only is it Paul's joy, but it's your personal joy, and it's the joy of God. Make my joy complete. What does unity look like? He says, by being of the same mind. Has the way to think the same way. And then he says, maintaining the same love. This is not a love of emotion, which is kind of, well, I kind of like this, I don't like this. No, this is the love of covenant commitment. It is to do what is in the best interest of an individual. Whether they receive it or not, whether they're really thankful that you love them like this, or they're like, I don't want that, just tell me what I want to hear. You are committed to loving them. You are maintaining the same love. And that's what servants do. Servants are always looking on how to bring things together, how to pull things together, not tear them apart. A person that is seeking unity, that is walking with Christ, they're asking questions like this. 
Will what I'm about to say or do, will this bring unity and glory to God? Or is this going to tear things apart? Paul is saying, when you're a Christ-centered individual, when Jesus is your strength, unity is your pursuit. You do, like he says, be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit. This means that you have the same desires, same passion, same ambitions. Now, some people think that it's unity at all costs. That's not what Paul is talking about. You don't like just, well, we're going to abandon the truth so we can maintain some sort of semblance of unity. And it's really interesting when you look at Christendom at large and you watch all of just this dysfunction and dismantling, they're like, well, yeah, we're going to accept this. We're going to just jettison these doctrines. Who cares what the Bible has to say about this issue? The only thing that's important is, is just unity. Jesus just wants us to love one another. And if truth gets in the way, truth is out of there. No, we are unified by the truth. We're unified in Christ, in truth, in love. And we are intent, notice what he says, on one purpose. What is that one purpose? Well, take you back to verse 27 in context. We're striving together for the faith of the gospel. We're not just people that go to church. Most certainly we're not here to be entertained. We are living life on mission. We're striving together for the faith of the gospel. We want to see the good news of Jesus go forth in our community, in our world. We want to see disciples made and God worshiped. We are moving forward for the faith of the gospel. And we're doing so together. In fact, we must. If we're going to have a witness to this world in our community, if we are going to experience the full force of what it means to be united in Christ, we have to be intent on one purpose. This is what unity looks like. It's kind of like a football team. You know, on a football team, you have all sorts of different players. They have different skills, but they all have one singular focus, right? That's how it works. I mean, in football, uh, not everybody plays the same position, right? Is that true? Is it everybody, everybody's the quarterback. Everybody wants to be the quarterback. Everybody's the quarterback. Is that how it works? No, that's uniformity. What he's talking about when he's talking about that we're united is there is a great diversity in our unity, that we are all going toward the same goal. We have a variety of positions. We're living in harmony. We complement one another. We are always trying to move the ball forward together on offense, and our defensive players are trying to prevent the ball being moved against us. They're trying to prevent the opposing team to score. At the same time, we're doing everything we can to move forward, to stay united, so that we will not only score but win the game. But we must work together. We respect each other, and we need each other to fulfill the role that you have. If we're going to have success, we've got to have unity. And friends, this is immensely practical in the local church. We have to have a heart of unity. We're very diverse, lots of different skills, many different gifts, but a singular focus of Jesus Christ and seeing the gospel go forward by faith. But I'll tell you what the evil one wants to do. He wants to break unity, disunity. He wants to shred it any semblance of coming together unified in Christ. 
There's an old parable about a father who had three sons that were just bickering and fighting all the time. They couldn't get along. And so he said, boys, come here. And he had this bundle of sticks. And he said to the oldest one, listen, I want you to take this bundle of sticks. I want you to break it. So the oldest son, you know, strong guy, takes this bundle of sticks. And and he's like trying to bust it over his leg. And he can't do it. So then the father said, all right, hand it to the next one in line here. The middle son, you. Take those sticks, that bundle of sticks, break them. So he gives it everything he gets, you know, and going through all these gyrations, and he can't break them. And he's got the third boy, you know, the, the youngest, and they're always watching, you know, like trying to figure out, like, oh, let's see here, what's going on here? And so the dad says to the youngest boy, all right, son, take this bundle of sticks and break them. And so he uh, takes the straps off the bundles, and he takes one stick at a time, snap, and he breaks them all. And the older boys are like, why didn't I think of that? And then dad said this, listen, separately, you are vulnerable and you can be broken, but together you're strong. Together you make it. And that's how it is in the local church, friends. That's how it is in your family. That's what a Christ-centered team looks like. We're unified, and we recognize how important it is to be unified. This whole idea of a lone ranger, I'm going to pick and choose and do whatever I want when I feel like it, that has got to go. That has to be jettisoned because that's how you lead to shipwreck. It is together. We are together in Christ. We're moving together. You know, the Roman army, that's what made them so formidable. They figured out, even though they lived in a culture of glory, of self-glory, They recognized if they were really going to be successful, they were going to be the Roman Empire that could not be conquered. When they fought, they had to fight together as an army of one. And so that's what they did. I mean, it is impressive if you've ever read about how the Roman army functions. But they would walk shields. They would all come together and they'd practice these formations. In fact, here's a picture of what that would look like. They would walk shields and they literally, no matter what was being thrown at them, shot at them, They would be prevented, whether it came up front and came above them. They had all their shields, and they would move forward as one unit. And then quickly, with just one command, they could spread out. They could turn into a forge, and they could actually like just arrow and just kind of knife their way into any situation. They functioned together as absolutely one unit. And that's why they were so very successful. You ever seen the movie The Gladiator? Okay, Russell Crowe, he's the gladiator. And there's some really pretty cool scenes, and it's really a lot of historical accuracy is portrayed in this movie. In one scene where uh, the gladiator and the fellow gladiators are thrown into the Roman Colosseum, um, they do not know what is coming after them. And so the gladiator, uh, Maximus Decimus Meridius, he says this, they're all gathered, and they're scared. They do not know what's coming. He says this, whatever comes out those gates, we've got a better chance of survival if we work together. If we stay together, we survive. Come together, lock your shields, stay as one. And so he gets all these slaves that are just, you know, basically gladiators. There is fodder for entertainment for Rome. 
And he teaches them, you need to come together as one. Lock shields. You know, in the movie, there's one guy like, I think I'll try it on my own. And he gets himself killed. But they survive. They defeat all these Roman soldiers. Why? Because they function as one. Friends, unity is essential for any team. It's true at your job. It's true in every ministry. It's true in your small group. It's true in our church. It's true in your family, and it's true in your marriage. So I got a couple questions. How is God developing a heart for unity in you? Where do you see him prompting? And second question, what is your next move in becoming a team player? What is your next move? What is God impressing upon you? The fellowship of the Spirit, the encouragement of Christ, what is he prompting you? What's your next move when it comes to unity? When it comes to a Christ-centered teams, it's, this is the first trait. You got to have this or you have nothing. You have to have unity. Let me give you the second trait. And you find it in verses three and four, and that is you have to have humility. If you really desire unity like the scriptures call and the spirit is empowering and pressing us toward, you have to have what is called humility. What does that look like? Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Do nothing. It's almost at times, don't you wish that like, there was like a little exception clause, like do most things, you know, like without being selfish, right? Do, he says, do nothing. There's no most things. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Selfishness has the idea of insisting on your own way, pushing your own way. And empty conceit is without concern for others. I don't care what you say. I don't care how this is going to affect you or others. It's all about me. It's what I want. That's selfishness. And we have, all of us have selfishness in us, don't we? We all have the potential to shred a marriage or trash a family or destroy a small group or rip apart a church. We all have it. And he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But what do you need? You need a humility of mind. You know, in our culture right now, one of the great things that is being cultivated, it is a culture of conceit. Christ is seeking to cultivate in his people a culture of humility. But in our culture, we value the conceited individual. I ran across this quote from the New Yorker. Uh, Brian Re- Robbins has a company that creates YouTube channels for teens and tweens. This is sobering, but listen to what he has to say. He should know. He's very successful at it. He says, quote, when you speak to kids, the number one thing they want to be is, anybody have a guess? That's it, famous. He says that the, the number one thing they want to be is famous. And then listen to this. And they don't even know what for. They just want to be famous. And we just reinforce this over and over and over again. We don't even know. Not sure why. Just, 
I just want to be famous. Christ, on the other hand, is calling us to what? What is this text telling us? But with humility of mind. This has the idea that you have a dependence upon God and you have a respect for others. That you see yourself rightly before God and you treat others with the respect that they deserve. That is humility of mind. Humility of mind is not, well, I just am... I'm just terrible, and I'm pathetic, and I'm not good at anything. And we think, oh, wow, I'm really humble, and I want people to know that that's not humility. That is that you are lacking an understanding of who you are in Christ and the tremendous value that you have. So it's not about like just putting on this little pathetic performance that you have nothing to offer. That's not humility. Humility actually requires that you have a strong sense of identity in Christ, that you have worth, Because God has declared you of great worth, demonstrated that you're of great worth, given you Christ, given his spirit, given you his word, called you to position, called you to community. You have immense worth. And because you have immense worth and you recognize, wow, this is all of grace, you engage with humility for the people in your lives. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is simply thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself like, oh, I'm just, well, I'm not really worth anything, okay? And we've all had our moments there, right? But rather to think less just about you and more about others. Notice what he said. Look at verses three and four. He said, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Well, well, that's going to take a miracle. Yeah, that's what God is seeking to do in every one of his believers where we thought, it's really not about me anymore. That's really important. It's about who? Others. And notice what he says. Verse four, do not merely look out for your own personal interests. That's automatic, right? But also for the interests of others. Of course you're looking out for your own personal interests, right? You're hungry, what do you do? You go raid the fridge. Thirsty, find something to drink. Need a nap, you take one, right? I mean, you, you see your own interests. I need something, I want something, you do it. But what God is seeking to do is move you beyond yourself to him and to how others have needs and how you could be a blessing. To open up your eyes and to be able to see It's the encouragement of Christ. It's the fellowship of the Spirit. It's the consolation. It's the love. It's the affection. It's what God is doing in his people. I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Uh, It was a chicken franchise that was just basically on its way to complete demise. That is until one leader took up the challenge. Her name? Cheryl Bockhelder. And she is the CEO of Popeye's. And she took over when they, they were totally tanking. And it looked like they were completely going under. This was not like a, a wise move, like, you know, like go to a company that's thriving. This is one that's on the verge of death. But she took the challenge. In fact, she took it as a sense of calling. And this woman, I'm going to tell you what, she is unashamed of her Christian faith. And she sees her life as a calling. 
And I want you to know how she has completely changed the culture in this particular chain of restaurants. She wrote a book called Dare to Serve, How to Drive Superior Results by Serving Others. Listen to what this committed Christian, listen to what Cheryl has to say. I'll read a quote. She said, quote, The Bible verse that's on my calendar every day is Philippians 2.3 because I haven't found one that's more paramount to how I want to lead in my family and in my work. And that is, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I really like that choice of words around counting others more significant than yourselves. I believe we're all born with an inner two-year-old. And we'd really still like to be laying on the floor, kicking and screaming, because we didn't get the candy bar we wanted. It's pretty hardwired that we're self-absorbed little people. And we learn to fake it well, but we're still pretty much that two-year-old on the inside. I find that biblical perspective really challenging in every aspect of my day, how I'm spending my time, the decisions I make, to put them through a filter of whether I'm thinking about myself or whether I'm thinking about others. Am I doing this because I'll get a bigger bonus check or am I really thinking about the long-term interest of this company? Am I doing this truly for my franchise owners Or am I getting some personal benefit that I haven't been willing to acknowledge? Those kinds of provocative self-mirror questions hold you to a higher standard. I always say servant leadership is an aspiration because you really can never claim that you've arrived. It's something you're always working toward. What does it look like when an athlete is unselfish? It's all about the team. It's not about, I think I can get the record here. No, it's about the team. What does it look like when a husband is putting these verses into practice? It's like, you know what? There's a lot of things that I could be involved in. A lot of things I might be really good at, but I've got a family, and I'm going to put them first. What does it look like for a, a mom to do this, to live out these verses, to not be irked, by the responsibilities that come with working with the kids, but to actually have a love and a passion for God that gets translated to a love and a passion for what God has called her to do. What does it look like for a child, a kid, and a family to live these out? It looks like respecting and honoring their parents, thinking about them. You know, kids, have you thought about it? Your parents have a heart and feelings too that you actually reflect upon them. They, they love you and sacrifice for you. You live these verses out, you know what? By putting their interests and an interest of honoring them. What does it look like when a Christian does this? It looks like they're going to say, there's no place for pride here. I am, in the strength and the name of Jesus, going to put another's interests before my own. A month ago, my family and I had the privilege of being in Costa Rica. I never thought I'd be in the rainforest, but it was really cool. 
Okay? You can ask my kids about it. But we're, we're a family that we've got lots of questions, and we can get pretty locked into things. And there was so much. It was fascinating. And if you really want to make the most of, like, the rainforest, get yourself a good guide. I tell you what, these Costa Rican guides we had were awesome. Okay? They spoke perfect English. I'm still working on my English. That was their second language. And they had spent years training. And they knew everything about the ecosystem and how it worked. And they'd point all these things out to us, and we're like, whoa, you've got to be kidding me. And like, like one of them that was really fascinating, and I have lots of pictures on, and video on my phone, are these leaf-cutting ants, okay? And you're like, oh, my goodness, what's wrong with this guy? But they are really cool. These leaf-cutting ants, I mean, they are awesome how they work together. I mean, they, they have all different sizes of ants, but they're all working together to produce food, fungi, for their, for their big colony of ants. And they all have roles. It's really interesting. So you have some ants that are defenders of the colony. Some are caretakers of the young. Some are gardeners. Some are foragers. Some are those that are actually the leafcutters themselves. And then to make this really cool, on some of the leafcutter ants, then you'll find these really little tiny ants, these leafcutter ants, and their job is to fight off carnivorous flies that are trying to eat the ant. I mean, they're all working together. They, they're hauling these leaves, okay? And there's a picture, you know, and you see them there. And there's all these little leaves moving through the forest. And they, they can even take a poisonous leaf and they inject their own um, acids into these leaves and can take it and make it a fulfilling meal. But they all work together in a common way for a common purpose. But they are all so very different. You know, that's what it's like in a local church. That's what it's like in a family that thrives. We have differing roles, but we come together with one purpose. That's how we thrive. That's how we ride out any storm, when we're unified and we have humility. And I want to just ask, do you want to get closer to the people in our church? Do you? If you do, let me tell you what to do. Join a team. Yeah, uh, it's, it's good to maybe go out and get coffee and talk. That's all great. But if you really want to grow closer to the people in our church, join a team. I mean, that's, it's through teamwork. Being on a team, that's where you experience the joys of working together and being stretched and accomplishing something together. Like, for instance, we're sending 52 students and leaders out to Alamosa, Colorado in a couple weeks with our student mission trip. And I want you to know, I'm really excited for them. Do you know why? Because I know that they're going to spend a lot of together time. I mean, when you're packed in those vans, okay, you're going to get to know each other really well, all right? But you're also going to have shared experiences. You're going to face challenges. Your faith is going to be stretched. You're going to be put in situations like, whoa, I'm going to really have to trust God on this. And that is by design. But you're going to experience the joy of doing it together. Sweat, joy, fun, laughter, but doing it to the glory of Christ. But I want you to know that those same opportunities that all of our students and those leaders are going to have are available to all of us right here in Waco, right here in our church. The finest way to really get to know people and to grow is to be a part of a ministry team. To say yes and be stretched. I mean, you will develop real relationships. You'll get to know each other in some pretty significant ways. You can do option A, sit on Netflix, uh, sit on a couch and watch Netflix reruns, or you can, you know what? 
I can actually engage and get to know people. And you feel good about it. You see a difference that is being made. And, you know, we have no business sending anybody to Alamosa or anywhere else if we're not proclaiming the gospel here, worshiping Christ, making disciples here, right? The only way that we've got any validity of sending anybody anywhere if it's happening here. Otherwise, we shouldn't be exporting anything. And the beauty of it is, is that it's happening. And friends, if you want to really experience the fullness of this text, Philippians 2 is calling us to live in Christ and live together as a team. And you're like, okay, well, okay, Grant, how do you do that? For those of you who are serving on teams, and we have so many, I'm just looking around, I see this. I just want to tell you how you can take those next steps of growth. And for those of you who are interested in taking that first step to being on a team, let me just tell you, this is how you do ministry. Be real. Not fake, real. And real is an acronym. Real is R. Reject passivity and take the initiative. Just reject passivity. All of us are are prone to be passive. Just like, oh, someone else will do it. No, you've got to reject passivity and you take the initiative. E is encouraged by showing that you care. So much ministry takes place when you just are encouraging and you smile and you show that you care. A, this is a great way to show that you care and most people aren't very good at it. It doesn't take much though to get really good at this. Ask questions. Just ask questions. Maybe even write out three questions. Just ask those three questions. And then L is listen to understand. You do this, friends, on any team. Friends, you see the ministry moving forward and you grow. So if you want to grow deeper, deeper in love with God, deeper in your own maturity, deeper in your relationships, remember this, God's work is accomplished through teamwork. God's work is accomplished through teamwork. A couple Wednesday nights ago, Karina and I had the privilege of serving in the children's ministry. So when all the adults were in here, being educated and having a great small group experience and and really growing in the book of James, uh, Karina and I got to join the children's ministry team. And I want you to know that Shauna and Carrie are doing an awesome job. They and their teams. And so we were there, and I mean, like, you have all these kids, and I mean, it is so much fun. It doesn't take much. Like, all, if you just show that you care about them, uh, you know, like, they were, we were just kind of goofing around. Next thing you know, I had a bunch of stickers on my back. I mean, we were kind of marching around. We played some games outside. We came in. We had this, we had a lesson on trials because adults are studying trials. Kids go through trials. Uh, the lesson uh, involved eggs, okay? And so, yes, it's true. Uh, we did smash a, a raw egg, and it went everywhere. And it made the lesson really effective. You know, like, all the kids were really into it. They got it, right? Um, after I'd been beat and Connect Four a couple times by kids, I thought I'd try something else. I moved to the arts and crafts table, and, and there was a, a little boy, and um, I'm just asking him, like, how's it going? And he's coloring. He's not looking up, and he goes, well, I'm actually, I'm pretty sad. I'm like, really? What's going on? Why are you sad? It's mom and dad, and there's some pretty serious trouble that's going on. And he knows all about it. And he's experiencing it. But he just keeps coloring. And all it did was open up a door for me to encourage him, to let him know someone cared, and just to be with him. That's what he's looking for. 
when we finished up at the night and, uh, you know, all the little children got picked up, you know, and we're kind of cleaning up stuff and we're kind of talking about the night, you know, one of our student leaders that was a part of our team that night, she announced that she just got accepted into nursing school. I'm like, yes, we're all excited, high fives. You know what we're experiencing? This text, this community, this is doing ministry together. Friends, this is where life is at. And I just will tell you that just even like last week, just throw out some examples. I had a young couple. Uh, they want to get married. They asked about premarital counseling. Is there, is there a way we could do that? I found out later that, this past week that uh, there was a young lady that started coming to our church, and she approached another lady and said, "How I want to be discipled. Is there anybody that, that you know that might be able to disciple me? In our children's ministry, there is such significant work that is being done But I want you to know, more teammates are needed. More teammates are needed. And so I'd just like to ask you this question. Who will make the investment? Who is it that will say yes to meet the need and the challenge? And I'll tell you who. It's those who are willing to step out in faith and understand and live out the reality that we are on a Christ-centered team. The connections we long for are found together on a team. God's work is accomplished through teamwork. Let's pray. Lord.